Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Uh, no, yeah, no. Well, some animals will die for us to cook next Sunday. Some pigs are going to die for us to smoke their shoulders and butts and stuff. And, um, uh, man, we're having we're all sorts. And I know, I know some people that almost killed stuff yesterday, fans of either UNC or NC State, that probably almost lost it. I'm like a pseudo-NC State fan, but my dominant emotion, if you, how many people watched that game yesterday? My dominant emotion was just, I felt bad for the kicker. I almost wish ECU had won, just because I can't imagine what the kicker is going to face. So, don't kill stuff or throw stuff, because your sports teams are, are, are starting back up. Okay, um, we had some technical difficulties this morning, so we're going to have to have a sermon without slides. We're going to be okay, because they did that for like 2,000 years. So it's going to be just fine. Um, if you have a Bible, uh, I would welcome you to open it uh, to Genesis chapter 1. And I am normally what we do is have you stand and I read the passage and, um, and then I say, this is the word of the Lord and you say, thanks be to God. And we do that as an acknowledgement, especially in our day, that we're grateful that God has given us his words and his words are more valuable than my words or your words. These are the most important words that will be spoken uh, today and that we're, we're grateful for them. So... I'm not going to have you stand because I'm going to read a really long passage, Um, but at the end I will say this is the word of the Lord, and you guys will say thanks be to God because you're thankful that God's given us his word. So I'm going to start right right in the beginning. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Honestly, since we don't have it on the screens, I almost suggest you close your eyes and just let God's word, like, wash over you. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind on the earth and it was so and the earth brought forth vegetation plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the third day and God said let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them, have, let, them, let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. 
And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. So happy Labor Day. Uh, I um, decided for Labor Day, we're in between series um, to spend a few minutes talking about um, work. There's an a, uh, essay that I read years ago in um, a series on work, like right at the beginning of the church. And the essay is written by a lady named Dorothy Sayers, who was uh, British and a prolific author in the mid-20th century in Britain. And so she wrote this essay called Why Work? And one of the, things, one of the many things that she said that stuck with me was this. Um, about church and work. She said, how can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter, you could fill in the blank, we probably don't have a lot of carpenters today, but whatever it is that you do, the church's approach to an intelligent blank is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisurely hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Church by all means and decent forms of amusement, certainly, but what use is all that if in the very center of his life and occupation he is insulting God with bad carpentry? No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter shop at Nazareth. And that challenged me and stuck with me, and, um, and it's why every, I don't know, so often I try and speak into work and feel guilty that we don't speak into work 
uh, more often. So this morning, I want to talk a bit about what our faith has to do with our work and how it speaks into it. How many of you work? Even if you don't have a job, you've got some form of work that you're involved in. When you just think about whatever the work is, when that comes to mind, the work that you're engaged in, on a scale of 1 to 10, how do you, like, how does that hit you? How do you feel about it? 1 to 10. 1 being, ah, it just kind of stinks, and 10 being it's unbelievable. Do you get a number that comes to your brain? Like, just kind of an intuitive 10? You're retired, right? Yeah. It's a pre-retirement and post-retirement, both? Okay, good. Uh... And what informs that number? Like, what informs how you feel about your work? What makes what work good and what makes work, like, not as good? Yeah, people are a big part of it. Yeah, whether you like what you're doing or not. Oh, being appreciated in what you do. If it's meaningful. The outcome of the work. Yeah, helping others enjoy their work. I know we're in church, y'all, but get paid. You want to get paid for your work, right? Does that affect how you feel about your work? Uh, in some way that it does. I, some people would say, man, it's easy, you know? <laughs> uh, are you good at it? Like, all those things factor into it. How does God feel about your work? Would he give the work the same number that you would give the work? Uh, does God care about our work? Uh, the early chapters of Genesis speak so loudly into this. Like the, the answers of, to those questions should be informed by, by what Scripture says about it. You know, but I think so often um, they're not. So I've got four things I'm going to say about this, and, and the cookies are going to be on the bottom shelf today. The first one is this, work is a good thing. Work is good. Um, you look at the last part of what I read. It's the very beginning of Genesis chapter 2. It said um, and that God works. The first thing we see God do is work and work hard. And then at the end, um, it says that God finished his work that he had done. Three times it says this. He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So he blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it he rested from all his work that he had done. The author is making it clear all this work that God had done. God is a worker and work is good. Um, we can take this for granted. One of the things that I can geek out on is looking at other like Sumerian and Babylonian and Egyptian creation accounts, cosmologies. And, and one of the things you find is that when, when you read them, and the Bible Project has some great podcasts on this, about how they were all working with the same pieces when you read the creation story. Like there's serpents in other creation stories, and there's darkness, and there's light, and um, there's a water, which seems to be a chaos. And so all of the creation stories are working with the same pieces, which, which could make you think, well, maybe we just copied theirs. But they're all radically different in how they order the pieces, and it's like they're speaking to each other. Um, like uh, cultures are speaking to each other about what they think, about what really happened. And so in in ours, God works, and, and that makes a difference because in other creation accounts, gods don't work. Um, in one of them, like there's major gods that have minor gods that do the work, but then the minor gods got sick of doing the work, so they went to the major gods and said, can we create some robots that will do the work for us? And we're the robots that do the work for the gods. Uh, the Greek 
account of creation begins with the golden age of harmony between the gods and mankind where neither one of them worked, and that's the ideal. Aristotle said that unemployment is the, was a primary qualification for a genuinely worthwhile um, life. Does our culture view work as a good thing or a bad thing? What do you think? Yeah, I think it depends. Like some people think it's fine, a good thing. Some people think it's a horrible thing, you know. I do think we idolize early retirement, um, which is to speak nothing about your retirement. Your retirement is well-deserved, Pat. Pat taught for how long? Almost 40 years, she taught. How do you feel about that? Um, I was on sabbatical when she actually retired, and I wanted to do that um, then. Yeah, I, don't, I think our culture is up in the air about um, work, and we just don't know how it fits. Um, I read an article that's a little bit off to the side, but, but not. And so it talked about how cultures need stories that shape the culture to give it hope. Like we're going in a certain direction and moving towards a place. And they were talking about how our culture has kind of lost track of its story. And maybe it was a story that was worth losing track of. But they said in the absence of that, it's a problem. It says at the heart of any cohesive culture is a story that gives us hope, a story that helps us overcome the working suspicion that all of our working and getting and spending amounts to nothing more than fidgeting while we wait for death. <laughs> um, and... Uh, there was an a, uh, uh, anthropologist that they quote that says that in the absence of a story that gives us hope, we become a kind of formless monster with neither sense of direction or power of self-control in the chaos of vague emotions. In the chaos of vague emotions. Um, and they go on to say, if there was any coherent narrative that brought or story that brought Americans together. And I think there was. You know, Manifest Destiny was a story that brought us together. A City on a Hill was a story that brought us together. The American Dream was a story that brought us together that I think we've lost, and I'm not sure any of those were good stories. Um, but if there was a coherent narrative, that's now all but faded. And the main narrative that's out there is consume, meet your desires, and try not to die. And I don't think that's that far off from the narrative that people are living in. And when we've been kept so busy so that we don't step back and think about what we're really uh, living out. And we are kind of a chaos of impulses and emotions. And I know I'm like gonna be on this bandwagon for a while, but this, just scrolling through, seeing if there's something there um, that will fix it. Sayers, in her essay, talked about work in this way. She said, the habit of thinking about work as something one does to make money is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine what a revolutionary change it would be to think about it instead in terms of the work done. To do so would mean taking the attitude of mind we reserve for our unpaid work, our hobbies, and the things we do and make for pleasure, and making that the standard of all our judgments about things and people. Uh, work is, is good. You see that in the beginning uh, with God. It says he, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. One guy did make an interesting comment about this. He said this line, in the beginning, um, God created the, the heavens and the earth, which he said we, we tend to come to Genesis asking questions that Genesis doesn't intend to answer. And so when it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, what he's really, like, to them, the earth was everything here. Like, all they didn't have a picture of the earth as a, you know, 
a ball hanging in the space. They just, this was all earth, and it was flat, and that was all heaven. And in the beginning, whenever, a long time ago, God created it. And it's almost like saying, yeah, a long time ago, God created all this stuff. But here's what's important, <laughs> is like how it speaks into these other stories and what God was trying to do with it. Um, and he says that, so the earth was formless and void in Hebrew is, formless and void is tohu vavohu, which kind of rolls off the tongue, right? Tohu vavohu. And, and it's meant to be like an alliteration, like wild and waste, or a wasteland wilderness. And God filled it, uh, or gave it form, it's formless and void, gave it form, and filled it. And so what you see him do in the first few days of creation is create forms. And so he creates um, light and darkness and separates them. And he separates the waters above the atmosphere from the waters below and creates the heavens in between them. And he separates dry land from waters. He creates forms and they're still void, so he fills them. So he puts the stars and the moon and the sun in the heavens, and he puts the birds up in the heavens, and he puts um, the fish into the seas, and he puts the animals on dry land, and finally, he puts us on there. And the refrain throughout it is, um, and he saw that it was what? Good. He looks at it and says it was good. It was formless and void, but now it's good. It was tohu vavohu, but now it's good in Hebrew is tov. Tohu vavohu to tov, which also rolls off the tongue. And that's what God does. And, and his work is finished, yet he created things that are going to keep multiplying according to their kind, by seed or by animals multiplying. And so they're just going to keep going, and creation is going to keep going. And he calls us into that work. So work is good. And the second point is that we were made to do good work. So he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let's make man different than everything else. We'll make him like us. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all the things that are on the earth. So he creates these things that are going to multiply, and then he creates us to corral it. So subduing has gotten a bad rap, right? That's not a popular thing to say, and I think that's probably for a number of reasons. One being that in our subduing, we have, you know, at times exploited it for our own purposes and not for God's purposes, and fair enough. Um, part of it, I think, is that we're in such a space culturally right now that we're so concerned about our freedom and right to do whatever we want that we somehow project that onto creation itself, that we should leave it alone, and what right do we have to, um, to subdue it? But I, I just think that's probably a not well thought through thought. And part of it is when you just look from a straight Darwinistic evolutionary standpoint, there's no difference between us and the rest of creation. Human rights, in that case, is an illusion, which... To think you're starting to see that the inconsistency play itself out and people get caught up in that. Um, and so what right do we have to subdue creation? Uh, this is what one person said about subduing. Subduing, this is how they kind of closed it in, involves asserting your will over something so that it yields its potential or increases its potential. And so that's what we're called to do. Uh, so if you think about a garden, how many of you have a garden in your yard? You have a yard, yeah. When you start a garden, I don't have a garden, I, I imagine this is not what you do. Like, go out on your back deck, 
you know, in the spring, have a couple of those packets of seeds, just kind of rip them open and just throw them off the back deck, you know, and throw another one and throw it off the back and throw another one and throw it off the back deck and then just see what happens. What's going to happen if you do that? It depends where you are in my yard because there's a slope and all the water from my neighbor's yard runs off into my other neighbor's yard. Then all those seeds would end up in his grass and he would mow them for a while and then he'd get mad at me, you know, and yell at me about them. Um, even if you had like a level grass, it depends what type of soil that you have. And if you just threw them out there, they would, they would grow too close together and either choke each other out um, or you would have weeds that spring up them in them and choke them out, or they might die for lack of water or sun, depending on where you put them, or there'll be animals that come and eat whatever does pop up, or insects that might do that. It would be, in short, tohu vavohu. Like, it would be a, a wasteland wilderness because it wasn't uh, properly cultivated. And so that's what we're called to do. Instead, if you have a garden, what you do is you... You take something that's formless and void, you give it form, you buy, those, you buy the, those, the wood and you make the raised bed garden right, and then you go get some topsoil and you dump it in there, and you fertilize it, and you make sure that there's good conditions, and you put the seeds in, but you space them out, and you put them in rows, and you make sure that they're growing according to their kind, like they're growing in order, and then you either put a fence around it, or you get a BB gun, or a 22, depending on your varmints. You know, in a six-pack and spend a lot of time on your deck making sure that those guys don't get whatever it is that you're growing. Um, and you pull weeds, and then you pull more weeds, and you pull more weeds, and you pull more weeds so the weeds don't choke it out. And you look for bugs, and you prune, and then you harvest. And that's what God does. Like, he takes what's formless, gives it form, he fills it, and manages it. And that's what we're called to do. So your work involves submitting your gifts to God to take that which is formless and void and make it productive for the benefit. And even, you can argue in Genesis 1, he does that for the benefit of us. Like he puts us over it, but he does it for us. He puts us on top of it in some ways. You do, you do your work for the benefit of someone else. Um, just late this week, just some podcasts in my feed that came up. One was an interview with some guys that wrote a book called Super Abundance. And it was talking about how, just how good, in all the bad news right now, how good we have it right now, and how low the, the relative cost is of basic staples according to what they've ever been in history, and how low poverty is compared to what it's ever been in history. And so we've got big problems, but we've got just an abundance of things, and it's because we've, we've cultivated things, um, because we've managed them for the benefit uh, of others. Now, at the same time, I listened to another, well, not at the same time, the next podcast was about GMOs and glyphosate and how there's Roundup in everything. Has anybody, does, does, who's like all over this? Holy cow. And so we screwed that up. But you know who's going to fix that? We are. <laughs> like, we're, this is what we do. And it's how we make things better. Martin Luther talked about this. He talked about work a ton. He talked about all work being sacred work. And it's not just the pastors and the priests that have sacred work. Everybody has a calling in sacred work. He talked about Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for God strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders, and he fills you with the finest of wheat. And said, how does God strengthen the bars of a city? 
Well, he doesn't, like, the magic hand of God doesn't strengthen the bars of the city. He does it by city planners and architects and politicians who pass laws to make things work the way that they're supposed to and to protect the city. How does he bless your children? He does it through the work of teachers and through the work of coaches and through the work of pediatricians. How does he make peace within our borders? He does it um, by means of, of lawyers and policemen who, uh, who seek justice and protect order. Um, how does he fill us with the finest of wheat? He does it by farmers and factory workers and restaurant owners. And so Luther ended up saying that our, ma- our professions are like masks that God wears in caring for the world. And so he would say, all of your work matters. And it doesn't matter, um, you know, just because you got to pray and share your faith with a coworker. It doesn't matter just because you earned some money to give to the work of the kingdom. You're doing the work of the kingdom. And your work is a blessing to the people around you. It's a way to love your neighbor. It's a quote from him. He said, what is our work in field and garden, in town and house, in battling and in ruling to God? What is our work to God? But the work of children through which he bestows his gifts on the land, in the house, and everywhere. Our works are God's masks behind which he remains hidden, although he does all things. If Gideon had not obeyed and gone to battle with Midian, the Midianites would never have been conquered, although God could, of course, have conquered them without Gideon. He could also give you corn and fruit without your plowing and planting, but that's not his will. Neither is it his will that your plowing and planting should produce corn and fruit, but that you must plow and plant and say a blessing on your work and pray, Now help, O God, give us now corn and fruit, dear Lord, for plowing and planting will not yield us anything. It's your gift. God is the giver of all good gifts, but you must take the bull by the horns, which means you must, give, you must work to give God an occasion and to give God a mask. Make the bars and gates and let him fasten them. Labor and let him give fruits. Govern and let him give blessing. Fight and let him give the victory. Preach and let him win hearts. Take a husband or a wife and let him produce the children. Eat and drink and let him nourish and strengthen you. And so on. In all our doings, he is to work through us, and he alone shall have the glory from it. That is the big picture of all of our work. We're not formless monsters with neither sense of direction nor power of self-control. We're not a chaos of spasmodic impulses and vague emotions. We're called into a bigger project that God has made us for. Um, Sometimes... It's hard to see the goodness of your work, but you're made to see the goodness of your work. That refrain, and he saw that it was good, is such a powerful, can you feel that refrain when he says it over and over again? Have you had moments in your work where you felt, I know that was good? Have you had moments like that? Uh, Have you had moments this week like that? And when you have moments like that, do you tie them together to what you're, you're made for? Uh, Kevin Carrada, a couple weeks ago, he does spend some time just working out of the building. And if, if you work from home, ever need a place to, like, just change of scenery, um, you're free to come over here and plop yourself someplace in the building and work. We love to have company here. But he came over. He's like, hey, let me show you this video. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be a stupid video, you know. But it was his, <laughs> it was his, uh, it was something for his work. They do some work in Vegas, and it was a promotional video, and he showed it to me, and he's so proud of it. And he's like, isn't that awesome? I'm like, I mean, that's pretty good. But, but it was awesome. Like, it was awesome, you know, and you could see, like, that's what he felt. And I was happy to be the recipient of, look, this work was good, and we should feel that on a regular basis. 
Um, last week's service, we had a prayer service, and Jean Marie planned it, and um, Kelly Manley planned the music for it, and and the band, and you know, for most of it, Kelly and Katie were up here. It was great. And when it started, like I was in the back and pretty nervous because I'm a control freak, and when I'm not in control of things on Sundays, I get control freakish. And Jean Marie was nervous because she's also a control freak. But it was her work. Like, she put work into that, prayed about it, and talked to people about it, and it was great. Like, at the end of that, man, that was, we were in the presence of the Lord, um, and it was great. We're made for moments like that. But for some of us, it's easier to feel that than for others, for, it, for probably a number of reasons. You know, one of them would be the distance from the end product. So if you're in a big corporation... Um, you may feel so far removed from the blessing that your corporation produces that you can't take pleasure in saying, look at what we've uh, done. Um, one, of the, one of the best books I read this summer on sabbatical was called Deep Work. It's by a guy named Cal Newport. It's not a Christian book. It's just about work. And he talks about how we live in the shallows. <laughs> it's part of the scrolling thing, like, and we don't really get down into concentrated deep work, and that's a strategic advantage to you if you can get yourself in a position where you can get into deep work, but it's hard for people in the environments where you were in, and he, he interviewed a guy who had, like, checked out of corporate America and lived in Door County, Wisconsin, which is a little bit further than Green Bay, and made swords for a living now, and this guy geeked. He made, like, Viking swords the, the type were made in, in the 700s and the 800s. I don't know that there's a big market for this. But he talked to the guy about what it was like to, like, smelt the iron according to what it would have been back then. And he ends up with this brick, and then you have to heat it up to a certain temperature and beat it. It takes hours to make these things. But this guy loved his work because it was right there. But he needed that because he had been in an environment where he felt so far apart, and he couldn't tie it together. We had a guy here for years who worked for, I think it was Pfizer, and so when, the, when, the, when COVID hit, he was one of the people I called and said, what is this? And he was working on the vaccine, you know? Um, and so he's like a distance from it, but man, it takes a whole lot of people with a small part to play in creating something like a vaccine in the amount of time that we created the vaccine uh, to do something that ends up being a good blessing. And I wonder if he was able to step back and even though it was a small part that he played to say, man, that was good. It's easier, like, we're a small church, so we get to see the good up close and personal that God is doing in people's lives. If you're part of a bigger church, like, there's bigger blessing. Like, you can have a bigger impact on the community, but you're a smaller part of it. And it probably all works, like, washes out if, when you, when you, you know, do the math on it. You know what I mean? But sometimes it's easier because you're closer uh, to the end of it, but you can still, like, you can still take joy in seeing the goodness of that work. And in the process, you know, you can see the goodness, like, in the step-by-step -step of it. And so it may be the relationships in your workplace. It may be how you managed a client relationship and did your part so well. It may be how you led a team to get on the same page and come up with a plan and execute it. It may be how you treated a coworker or an employee in a difficult circumstances where in your patch of the garden, you took something that was formless and gave it form and something that was void and filled it. And at the end, you can say that was good and feel that satisfaction. And that's the Lord's image being worked out in you. Um, it also can be hard to 
to see that goodness because uh, we question the value of the end product. And I know I've talked to some of you about wondering if the thing that your company produces is worth anything after all anyway. And it may not be. Uh, this is another quote from that Sayers essay. She says, a society in which consumption has to be artificially stimulated in order to keep production going is a society founded on trash and waste, and such a society is a house built upon sand. And there's certainly parts of our society that are exactly that. And then she says, the greatest insult which the commercial age has offered to the worker has been to rob him of all interest in the end product of the work and force him to dedicate his life to making badly things that were not worth making in the first place. Um, it may be that you're, you're, you know, you're working in, a, in a, a sector that isn't producing anything of value. And if that's what you're doing, then get out of it and find something else to do, you know. Uh, Maybe for the good of all of us, because there are just sectors that are producing things that aren't worth anything. Um, it may be that it's hard to find the goodness in that all the time because work is hard. That, that um, he saw that it was good is a rhythm. It's not like an every second, but every day. There's a rhythm to that. And so there's times when work is going to be hard, you know. Uh, and so I said this a few weeks ago, there's a line that's going around, find a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life. I just don't know many people that have actually gotten that, or even if that's what we're supposed to be after. Um, it's kind of like saying marry your soulmate with the idea that you'll be happy every single day of your life. You marry your soulmate, you're still both sinners, and you're going you're gonna to frustrate each other because God wants to use you, each other, and your relationship to sanctify each other, and that's going to be hard. It's going to be great, but it's going to be hard. Don't buy the illusion that work will never be hard, uh, but don't settle for work that isn't satisfying as well. And finally, and it, it may be that our ego keeps us from seeing the good in our work. And so this is the last, um, the, the four things I wanted to say today. Work is good. You were made to do good work. Sometimes it's hard to see the goodness of your work. And the last one is this, your work does not define you. And so, so often... Um, in our culture, it's either our work or what our work gives us, and that can be the money, it can be the status, it can be the stuff, and those things define us. Those things tell us that we are good, um, and so our ego gets in the way because it's not telling us enough of we what we want to hear, and so we end up not we end up hating the work. Uh, work will crush us if we ask it to do something for us that it was never meant to do. And everything else will crush us the same way. Sex will crush you when you... Sex is crushing our culture because we're asking it to do something it was never made to do. Um, our stuff is crushing us because we're asking it to do stuff that it was never made to do. And your relationships can do the same thing. So if you say, I am good because I do good work, or I'm good because I'm attractive, or because I have a spouse that affirms my goodness, or children that perform the way that they're supposed to, like, they'll crush you or you will crush them. But it's not, it's not going to work. Um, one person said, we treat the work like it was made to serve us, but instead God made us to serve the work. We were made to serve the work. The work was not made to serve us. And so when we ask the work to do something it wasn't made to do, it's not going to work. But when we give ourselves to the work for the purposes that God has behind it, it, it will. And so what we see, a couple things in the end of that passage, God rests from his work and calls us, he's going to call us into a Sabbath rest as well. Uh, and, and he does that. When your work defines you, 
um, when your work is the thing that tells you that you're good, you can't rest from it. Like, you can't set it down. Um, on sabbatical, that was one of the things I wondered about, was three months stepping away from this. Uh, I, th I thought I would find out how much I've been defined by my work, um, by, by my ability to let it go. And either I was so exhausted it didn't matter, or I'm not defined by my work, because I was able to let it go. And... Um, I told you guys one of the things that I felt the most guilty about was how little I thought about Oak City Church while I was gone. I love you, but I just didn't think about you very much. It was great. Uh, and it was healthy to not be defined um, by my work. And God, and part of that's like the habit and the practice of stepping away from the work. And God says that. Like on, a, on the regular, that's what he calls us, a Sabbath, where you just step away from it and say the universe will go on without me. I am not the one that is necessary. It will all go on without me. Um, and the other thing that he does in there is at the, at the end of creation, he says everything is good. He gets done with day six after he creates um, Adam and Eve. He creates us. He says, you are very good. The thing that defines you is God saying you are very good. It's not your work saying you are very good, or, or other people saying you are very good because of the work or because of the stuff or be, whatever it might be. God is the only one that can define you. Um, and if that's up in the air for you, everything's going to be up in the air for you. Now, the problem, and um, I'm going to move into getting us ready for communion, and so um, Julie and John, you guys can come back up is that a couple chapters later, uh, and we'll look at this in a few weeks, he, he gives us this tree of the knowledge of good and evil and says, hey, just leave this one alone and let me give you the knowledge of good and evil on an as-needed basis. Trust me, is basically what he says. And we take from it and think, I got this. <laughs> and we screw everything up. And immediately they realize they're no longer very good, uh, that they're bad. And we struggle with that same thing. And if we go to the things around us, and our work is one of the big things we can do uh, to say, this is the thing that will make me good again. Or our spiritual works. When you ask people where they are with God, or, or if they're going to heaven, what they'll typically say is, well, I, I did my best. Which is to say, I think the thing that defines me is my ability to work for God. And the Bible is so clear that there's no amount of good works that we can do for God. Um, and that it's, and this the whole story, that he had to do a work for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. And so Jesus on the cross takes, takes our bad works and exchanges them for his good work, for his perfect life. So that the Father looks at us and doesn't see our unrighteousness, but sees the righteousness of Christ. And once again says... You are very good because of what Christ has given you. And that is the grace of God to us. Uh, and, and unless we're resting in that, we're going to have a really hard time resting from work or resting from anything else. So this morning, we're going um, to take communion. Ken and Mike are going to come up and um, serve communion to us. If you're new to Oak City Church, the way our way of doing this is um, we've got some uh, some bread that has been um, torn up. There is some gluten-free uh, crackers there too, and then some juice. And so you will come up, and um, Ken or Michael will say, "This is 
the body of Christ broken for you, you don't have to say anything. You can say, thanks be to God. You can say amen. You can say whatever you want to. And then um, Kenner Michael will say, this is the body of Christ or the blood of Christ that's been poured out for you. Uh, you don't have to come up by rows. You just come up whenever you feel like it in these next few songs. You can, you can partake in that right there or you can take it back to your seat and partake in it. If, um, and if you have, have um, accepted who Christ is and what he's done on your behalf, we invite you to do that. If you haven't done that, if you're just here like someone dragged you to church, you're just checking this thing out, then don't. Wait until you're there um, in understanding who Jesus is and what he has done for you. But if you're there and you've never surrendered to who Christ is and your need for his sacrifice on your behalf, uh, and you've had those lingering things of, I can remember putting my head down on the pillow at night when I was a kid, wondering if I'd done enough good things that if I died tonight, I'd go to heaven, or if I'd done too many bad things, and there were some bad things, that I would go to hell. And someone eventually explaining to me, that's why there's a cross in the middle of the story, because you could never do enough good things. If you could do enough good things, there wouldn't be a need for a cross. It's all about what he has done for you. And there's so much, there's a surrender to that, but there's so much freedom in that. And in that, we hear you are very good, and he loves you. And so we invite you into that and to take that, take that step with Christ. Father, I pray, for, um, I pray for those of us that are here and those of us that are, are tuning in. And work is a consuming thing. We spend so much of our time um, with our work, Lord. I pray that um, you would reshape our thoughts about work according to, to what you've given us in the very beginning of the Bible, that we would recognize the ways that we are made in your image, the ways that we um, seek to be productive, the, way, the ways that we seek to be beneficial to the people around us, Lord, and that we would find joy in the work that you've called us to do um, by seeing yourself in the work that we're doing and the, the blessing that you, are, that you are putting forth out of our work, Lord, and that we can see what it is um, to look at work and know that it was something that was good and that, that all of that came from you. Father, we love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.